It's good to see you. I'm in the middle of a, a three-country uh, visit to a lot of the, our Daily Bread offices in Malaysia, Singapore, and uh, Indonesia. And I'm happy to be a part of a team that's global. We probably touch about 20 million people around the world with uh, different kinds of resources uh, that are available in just about every medium. And uh, you'll hear about a new uh, light project, which uh, brings a solar panel with some literature to some areas in Indonesia that don't have electricity. So for about 25 years before I came to Our Daily Bread, I was the dean at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, I'll make some references that will make sense to you um, coming from a seminary, okay? So our, uh, our topic today is about Jonah. And uh, as I did in a Bible conference yesterday with Esther, I'd like to reintroduce you to characters in the Bible that you probably, uh, if you grew up in the church, you probably became familiar with uh, from an early age. And so the story has a colorful, um, memorable dimension to it, but often our takeaways from them are quite simple and sometimes simplistic. And so Jonah has been an important book for me, and it's been an important book for me when I've thought about people in ministry and I don't mean by ministry people that are in full-time vocational um, NGOs or churches, but all of us, why are we all called into service? And so the first question um, that I want to ask is, uh, in this process, is why did God call you into service? And um, you might be thinking about the specific area of need that God called you to, but what I want to do is I want to get up inside of his mind and say, what was he thinking? We, we do a lot of our own reflection on what were we thinking. We get ourselves into some real predicaments, and sometimes even good intentions get us into spaces, and we say, what was I thinking? And I want to ask the different question is, what, what was God thinking? So <clears throat> the first reason for ministry is obvious uh, in the story because the very first verse says, and the Lord God spoke to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city. All of us have assignments. All of us have been deputized to do certain things that we feel God has called us to do, that he's led us to do. So the Bible's full of lots of commandments and so they're generically applicable to all of us, like the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. We've all been put to work. But I want us to pause here for a minute on verse 1 and realize that there's something in the heart of the Bible which is not simply that the God of the universe has requirements, but actually that the God of the Bible prefers to deputize or delegate rather than to do things himself on earth. So although, of course, every living thing depends on God for every breath, we all depend on what God does in this universe, but the most important things that relate to God's plan on earth, he keeps giving to people who don't seem to be very eligible. When I think about um, God's choices, I think, it's ironic that many of us work in settings where we're involved in hiring people. Some of you might even work in a human resources department. 
And when I think about the human resources department in heaven, I think um, God's not really looking at all of our resumes saying, you would be really good at this. I need people like you. No, in heaven, there's one person already who's really good at everything, and God looks at all the resumes, and he's thinking about something else besides your incredible competence. And that's part of what the story of Jonah is about. So I like to say that God, part of the storyline of the Bible is God's preference to delegate. And even passages in the Old Testament that describe the coming Messiah, like Ezekiel 34, just you're going into exile because all of your shepherds have been bad shepherds. Instead of leading you, they've been feeding off of you. They're terrible. They let you go wild. And this metaphor is about Israel just going dispersed into a wild wilderness with predators. And God promises, I will come myself. I will myself come. And it's almost as though there's been a reluctance, I'll put in quotes, almost a reluctance for God to be physically visible on earth. He had a temple. People could come and they could worship in his presence, but he's always delegating. And so then when Jesus comes, imagine the most critical moment in human history, and for 30 years, Jesus is, for the most part, incognito. And then when he goes into ministry, he's already delegating. You go. You go out by twos. He sends them out. When the 5,000 men plus women and children, okay, maybe 20, 30,000 people are hungry, I love it when Jesus says, you feed them. He put ministry in their hands. He wasn't just coming to say, I'm here. He was coming to say the kingdom of God is here. You do it. You get involved in this. And he even said, I need to go. Like somehow three years was almost too much, almost too long because I need to go. And when I go, I'm going to put my spirit in you and then you'll go. And then off they go, frail, just weak, sinful humans who keep making mistakes, and it's like God has this immense treasure in store for everyone in the world, and he keeps putting it in the hands of people who shouldn't have been eligible for the job. So let's not miss that. This is the, the storyline of the Bible. He put the world in, in the hands of Adam and Eve, you could say. Cultivate this, guard and keep it, and then it just goes away. But now there's a second reason that's related to it. And that is that we do get assignments. We do feel God leading us and guiding us. We have a sense that he's asking us to do something. And sometimes we do run away. And Jonah is a graphic example of why it's not worth it. Okay? So many of us find ourselves in something like the belly of a fish. We find ourselves in circumstances that implode around us. And we think that we have been able to successfully postpone or avoid something God's asking us to do, and things become a mess. And that's part of what God does. That's part of what he does. In fact, in the book of Jonah, there's one word in Hebrew, manna, which 
is translated sometimes appoint. God appointed a storm. Later on, he appoints a wind from the desert. After he appoints a worm to, to, uh, to destroy a plant which God appointed. So if you can imagine, the, the world is like a, a dramatic set, and God puts us in there to play a role, and when we, tr- when we try to go off script, he starts to manipulate the forces around us to get at us. And so simply, it's not worth it. Most of us find out that running away from God, wasted time, we regret it, even though we were making such smart decisions like, well, if I, just, if I can have my retirement taken care of before I do this, or if I can make sure that we sort of hedge our bets on this, or we get our kids through school, and you kind of make all of these really smart decisions, and then God seems to let things fall apart, because in His providence, He's doing something more than just trying to get a job done. There's a third reason, and that's in the third chapter, and that is because God gives second chances. When you open up Jonah, and I trust that you'll reread it in this um, invitation to get reacquainted with Jonah, read Jonah 3.1, and you'll see it says the same thing as Jonah 1.1, except for one other word. And the Lord spoke to Jonah, son of Amittai, a second time. Just one word in Hebrew. Spoke to him a second time, saying, Rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the word. And this is something that runs through Scripture over and over again, is that God will give people second chances. Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree, you'll die. But, you know, after they ate from the tree, there was a reprieve. There was a a season in which their eventual mortality would grip them and they would die. And God was giving them another chance. And God gives the earth another chance. He gives the world another chance. The flood comes and God starts again. A full reset. The waters cover the earth and then the waters subside and then there's the land. It's got all this language of Genesis 1 in it. And there's even a garden. And then Noah and his family are like this new family. It's like a new restart. And there again you have sin and you have shame All these echoes from creation. And the Bible just keeps going. God keeps recreating. He keeps restarting, keeps resetting. In fact, one of my favorite two letters in the English language that I see in the Bible are the letters R-E, re. I call it the theology of the re-prefix because the Bible has redemption, it has restoration, it has recreation, it has all of these words that, that give you, that reinforce the biblical truth that God will redo. He will reset. He does it again. So Jonah wasn't just sorry that he decided to uh, avoid God. Jonah actually was invited back into the place where he was to do it again. And God was with him then. And so I think about the Bible as a whole string of stories of setbacks and comebacks, just like that. You know, Peter, you'll deny me, a lot of bravado, of course you're going to be with me till the end. No, not really, you're going to deny me. Three denials, and then Jesus comes back. 
three times. Feed my sheep. There it is. My preference is to delegate. I'm not delegating to you because you're the winner of the, uh, the prize for the best resume. No, actually, you're the one who denied me three times. Maybe now you're ready for me to give you that word three times. And then there's another <clears throat> important one, which I've come, to a I've come to realize, and that is that sometimes, to our surprise, there are people that are ready when we have something to give them. People are hungry, but, but which ones are the most hungry? Which ones are the most ripe and ready? I, I, uh, I married into a family of people that weren't believers, and to my surprise, you know, it's my wife's uncle who's the most ready, and how God got me ready to be where he is was they needed someone to do a couple of funerals in the family because they were so completely unchurched, they figured, well, you know, you can do that, right? <laughs> you can do a funeral. So it was a grandmother, then it was another aunt, and then so I have an uncle saying, you know, I, I want you to do my funeral. I said, well, yeah, I'd like to do your baptism first, you know, <laughs> and your kids. But how, who would know? My 19-year-old nephew. I, I wouldn't know. <clears throat> Jonah, of all things, is in a boat with a bunch of sailors who say, what's going on with the storm? And Jonah says, it, 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 the problem's me. I worship the God of the land and the sea. And they don't want to throw them overboard, but they do. You know how the story goes. But the story in the first chapter comes to this nice moment when the sailors worship Yahweh. They were ready. Jonah 3, Jonah goes to the people of Nineveh, and they turn and repent. And then the king of Nineveh makes a decree by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. This is like sort of generic spiritual instinct. If fasting is done in religions, let's do a super one. No food or drink, and even the animals fast. And let's everybody be covered with sackcloth, including the animals. There's something in this story that is typical, actually, in the Bible, that there are people, unbeknownst to us, who are ready, and they have an ignorant, innocent openness. This king just says, let's, let's do some religious stuff, because we're going to avoid this. And he says, let the people give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The sailors said in chapter 1, perhaps, let's offer sacrifice. Perhaps we'll be saved. And the Bible is kind of a story of people that God calls to be the conduit for his word and his blessing. And then in these stories, there's this chronic tendency to be disobedient to be reluctant, and meanwhile, peppered in the storyline are people outside the community who didn't have catechism, they didn't grow up in the church, so to speak, they don't know the rules, they don't know the law, they just know a little bit. So Rahab hides the spies in Jericho and says, we've heard about your God. She takes a risk on her life and hides them and says, I'm with you, not with them. That's a big deal. A couple generations later, someone else in her line, Ruth, 
Ruth marries in her own homeland. She marries somebody that's a Hebrew, and then when he dies and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law die, she goes back with S, she goes back with Naomi and says, your people will be my people. Pretty much what Ruth said. I'm going to be on your side. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. These people dot the storyline. You'll get to the, to the New Testament and you'll have a centurion. Jesus like, I don't see faith like this in Israel. You'll see Cornelius. I'm going to do what some uh, vision tells me to do. Count me in. These are like embarrassing characters in the storyline of the Bible. They just, they, they're just ready. They get it. And they remind us that sometimes being an insider gets us a little insulated. Sometimes, like Jonah, we're going to become more ethnocentric, and we sort of think about the in-group as the ones that really know. And God will surprise us with people on the outside. One of, the way, one of the moments when I learned that uh, people were more ready than I thought was I, I used to fly back and forth from Charlotte to Boston in the U.S. for my job. And um, I got enough miles that one time I was bumped up to first class. It happens about once every decade. But anyway, it happened one day. I was, I was happy, and um, I was working on a Bible study. So I actually had my laptop, and I had my Bible. I was kind of spread out in first class. And uh, the seat beside me wasn't taken, so that was even better. I had, I had room, and I could focus. It was a nice two-hour trip. And then, just as they were getting ready to close off the jetway, they, uh, they, it was clear that somebody else was coming on. So this guy that was big and loud, um, more than the average American, like big and loud, and came on the plane, and he's talking on his phone, and you could smell the alcohol as he came on the plane, and he was talking about meeting some girl in a hotel, like totally inappropriate. And they tried to calm him down, tried to get him to shut his phone off, and he sits down right next to me. So, you know, I still, I, I had a Bible study to do, and so I'm, you know, working away. And so when he finally is forced to turn off his phone, he looks at me and he said, so, what are you? I said, well, I'm, you know, a Bible teacher. Oh, professional religious person, right? Well, that's not my preferred title, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I, it, is, it is kind of my living that I do this. Well, I know what you're going to tell me. And I said, I wasn't planning on telling you anything. <laughs> no, I know what you're going to tell me. He just kept kind of badgering me, like, go ahead, go ahead, say it. I said, well, what, what is it that, you, that you're sure I'm going to say that I don't even know? He, he said, yeah, you're going to tell me what to give up. Give up women, give up your alcohol, give up your lifestyle, give it up. That's what you people, that's what you people say, right? I said, well, I wasn't planning on saying that. <laughs> but then he kept saying, oh, no, 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 that's, that, that's what you're going to say. That's, that's why you're here. I said, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be in this seat. He said, well, that's it, proves it. That's why you're in this seat, because you're right here to tell me what's wrong with me. So he just kind of kept at it, and I finally just, I just finally looked at him, and I said, can you tell me what happened? And, um, you know, with a little, a little alcohol, it was probably easier for him to cry, and he just said, my wife was the religious one. I wasn't. She prayed. She went to church, read her Bible, 
and she got cancer. And then she kept praying, she trusted God, and he didn't do anything for her. And now look, she's gone, and I've got nothing. So I said, look, the God that I know is probably not putting me here to tell you what you shouldn't do. But I said, what I can tell you to do is, all of us heard that you're going to a hotel. <laughs> in the hotel room, there's a little drawer with a Bible in it. And I said, if you start reading the Bible when you get there, and you start to listen to God's voice, he's going to tell you something. And it will be about his love for you. He really does exist. He really does want you. He's reaching out to you. He can. So, um, I gave him my card. I said, call me up when, it, you know, when you make a decision. Because he was pretty excited about all the plans he had for a weekend. So anyway, a few, a few months later, <laughs> I, I took the same flight from the same gate all the time. So uh, there was like a little legal seafood restaurant right there. It had a bar next to the gate. And I was walking, walking out one time, and I, I recognized him again. <laughs> It was, it was months later, and I walked up to him. Sure enough, he was on the phone again, and, uh, you know, a glass of wine. And um, I just tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, oh, no, it's the God man. <laughs> it's the second time he didn't uh, use the right title for me. But anyway, um, I just have to say, this, the story of Jonah says something about the fact that when God asks you to do something, it isn't just for you. He does, he does have something in mind for someone else. And we get caught up ourselves, and am I ready, or do I want to do something else first? And it's like, I'm making a connection. It's almost like this massive kind of dating service where God says, well, I got someone on this end and someone on this end, and I've set up a rendezvous. So you don't just like have a choice for timing. That's what's going on. Well, there's another reason, and that's the reason that most people think about the story of Jonah. That is, God loves the world. We know that from John 3.16, but it's true in the Old Testament too, right? Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, and then we kind of skim ahead and we get our Ruth and our Rahab, uh, and, and then um, keep going, and oh, there's Jonah. That's great. We got some Psalms and some Isaiah. We know God loves the whole world, but we think you know, it's mostly a New Testament idea, and there it is, Jonah is preaching the gospel to the very kingdom that was oppressing Israel. So it's a great story. God even loves the Assyrians. And all that's true. That's true. The, the New Testament has a, a louder emphasis on God's love for the world, and Jonah is one of those great stories that makes a point. If that was the last chapter of Jonah, then it would be a great book about missions and maybe nothing more than that for most of us. But for some reason, the fourth chapter of Jonah hints at, well, it's bigger than a hint, that there's something else going on. And in reality, the evangelistic crusade that went on in Nineveh was not only successful, but relatively easy. The bigger problem, the bigger predicament, you could say, the bigger challenge is whether or not Jonah is actually going to resonate with his own message about love. So when you get to Jonah chapter 4, 
God starts to leverage some of these elements in nature to get Jonah angry because he wants to get at Jonah's heart. Do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah says, this is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You can almost imagine Jonah saying it quickly because he's heard it. It's in Exodus. It's in Psalms. It's part of the liturgy. We all, we all know this about you. And God puts him into this little incubator where there's a plant that gives him shade from the sun and then the plant is, uh, you know, sort of dies because of a worm and then Jonah is asked again, do you have a right to be angry? And he says, yes, angry enough to die. And so the book ends with God asking questions that have to do with Jonah's heart and God's heart. You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Some translations say pity. What moves you, Jonah? It looks like what you're moved by is something that impacts your personal comfort. That's what you're mad about. And it all, anything that also disturbs your kind of egotistical, ethnocentric worldview, that bothers you. Now I know what you feel. How do you think I feel? I have 120,000 people and animals. They don't have a clue about me, and I'm their God, and I sent you there with a message. And somehow Jonah knew that even though it was a message of judgment, he actually knew that God would likely, typically, be reluctant to execute judgment without a reprieve. It's just what I thought. This is just why I didn't want to do it, because it's just like you. But for Jonah, that's all confessional orthodoxy. This is what we know about you. And here's one of the ironies. Those words about being slow to anger, about, again, there's Jonah's anger, quick to anger, God's slow to anger, his compassion, those very phrases echo through the Old Testament, and they start in Exodus after God gave the commandments, Moses brings them down and finds the people worshiping a golden calf. Moses smashes the tablets, and God will give them a second chance. And when he does, Israel confesses that the God that they worship is slow to anger, quick to forgive, and he will be faithful. And Israel wanted to keep that as a private confession about a God who would be that way for them only. And so God used his providential control over the elements to expose this big discrepancy between Jonah's heart and God's heart. This is what's, this is what's on my heart. It's the whole world. This is what I care about. I'm distressed by the world's situation, and I don't care what country they're in. And you're distressed about some things that affect your personal comfort. 
So I want to turn this into a little bit of reflection for you, for me, to say, you know, what, what's been your journey like when God puts you into service, when He gives you an assignment? You know, the first words of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, do you remember what they are? It's not about you. It's a great way to start the book. Because a lot of us need to be reminded, you know, it's not, it's not about me. You, you got to, you know, this, God puts us on this earth to give our life away. In my experience, that is the right place to start. But at some point along the way, you hear a little bit of a divine whisper. When you think you're doing something for God that maybe he might even need you for, and you hear this little whisper that says, this is about you. It's actually a distressing whisper because God allows us to wreck things. We wreck marriages. We wreck families. We wreck ministries. And God's saying, I didn't just hire you to be a messenger. Like, that's easy. I can get stuff done. I wanted to deploy you because it would be the setting for your sanctification. And so, you can't say the same thing to everyone. We're all on a different journey. Some of us need to be moved by the hungry crowd. But even if that's what you're moved by, there'll probably come a time when you realize when you get into the thick of it and you start getting frustrated, God might say, so you're angry. And He might say, I want to show you something inside my heart. This, this is what I deal with. And I feel like that's part of what my journey in different kinds of ministry have been. I, so I had an interesting opportunity with my wife. We ran a home for international students in Boston. We signed a non-proselytizing statement so that all the foreign student housing offices would recommend students to us. And we would populate the house with maybe two or three students that were believers and let them have kind of friendship evangelism. So 20 to 25 people from other countries. And I can't tell you how many times I felt like I, I got into the thick of it with conflict between people. And I just felt like I heard this voice in heaven say, so now you know how I feel. I, I, I had a, a Christian roommate who complained to me that his Muslim roommate kept disturbing him by praying all the time. I'm trying to study, you know, and these are people at Harvard and MIT, and they're like, like, I'm in chemical engineering, and I, I have to study. And all of a sudden, it's like he rolls out his rug, and he's doing all this, and he's like, I, I can't put up with this. I thought, you know, God said, you know, I made a world in which I don't coerce everyone to follow me. In fact, I let the rain fall on the just and the unjust. And I want people to recognize my heart as you love them. So I found myself in this precarious role of saying to my Christian student, you need to love your roommate, let him pray. If you need to go into another place, go ahead. Because we don't run the kind of a house that's different than the kind of a world that God runs. I think about Elijah, who was sort of a great fundamentalist, you could say. Like, he went, he went on top of Mount Carmel and he said, let's get everybody together and let's have a showdown. The prophets of Baal and the prophetesses of Asherah, 
You do your best to try to prove that your gods are alive, and then I'll pray to Yahweh, and we'll see who the real God is. And he says to Israel, choose who you will follow. Make up your mind today. Really, black and white. That's kind of a dangerous uh, position to be in when you're the spokesperson for right and wrong, and you are associated with the right. So, after God says, after God uh, chooses to close the heavens from rain for seven years, where does he send Elijah? He makes him a guest in the home of a Sidonian woman, which is basically the backyard, not only of Jezebel, but of Baal and Asherah worship. He makes him a guest. It's like, I, when, when you read these stories, you realize, you know, God's doing something inside Elijah. We saw the fireworks on Mount Carmel. That gets our attention. But then God watches him and says, you know, I don't know if, you, I don't know if this is going to affect you the wrong way. I need you to understand. I care about people. And some people happen to follow the wrong gods, but I'm there for them. So obviously in Jonah, as the story ends with a question, we don't know how it's really going to end for Jonah. What's really happening in Jonah is that we're getting a window into how service can be the setting for sanctification. So this is a thesis I'll just leave with you. Is it possible that when God called us into his family, one of our first mistakes can be we think it's all about me. No, it's not about you. There's a family business. You're not just a son. You're a steward. You're a servant. You know, you're in the family household. There's, a fam there's family work to do. He calls you one of his sheep, but he also says, I need shepherds. So he sends you out. That's important. But he wants to develop family likeness. He wants to develop family resemblance. If you greet, he says in Matthew 5, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to resemble me from the inside out. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in situations where I ask you to do something, and while you are doing it, I'll be looking at what happens inside. I do trust you. I'm, entr I'm entrusting the work to you. Spread the words. Fertilize. Do it. Plant churches. You know, serve. Reach out to human need. But I will be looking to see what's going on inside you. Because if doing this work gives rise to self-righteousness, if it gives rise to moralism and to a kind of judgmental spirit about the rest of the world, I will expose that. And I will be willing to wreak havoc in your world. Even, unfortunately, other people are going to suffer for me to get to you. And that's what I see happening. Service seems to be God's chosen setting for our sanctification. So I'll close with another story that happens in Joppa. Jonah runs away in Joppa, and it turns out Simon Bar-Jonah, okay, one place in the Gospels it says Simon's, uh, Peter's father's name is Jonah, which is kind of fitting. And so S uh, Simon Peter's in Joppa having a dream, and Cornelius is having a dream up in uh, Caesarea, up the coast. Joppa is a Jewish port, still in the time of the first century in the New Testament. It's a Jewish port. 
Peter's staying with a Jewish family, and Caesarea is named after Caesar, okay? It's a Roman city, so you got a centurion. And Peter was called to be an apostle to the Jews. But before he can get going on that ministry, before you ever have the first church council, before any of that, God sends Peter to Cornelius, and he pretty much shows up and says, the only reason I'm here is because an angel told me to. I had a dream about a sheet with, sheet with unclean animals. Like this is, Peter was scandalized in the process. God could have reached the centurion, Cornelius, could have reached him in a thousand other ways. But maybe he couldn't reach Peter in another way. It doesn't mean the story's all about Peter. It means it's all about God and whether or not he can get full access to us when he mobilizes us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we want to embrace the reality that you may cause pain to get at us. We pray, Father, that in our worship, we would be supple. We would make ourselves vulnerable and as innocent as some of the pagans in the Bible are before you. We want to be with you. We want to be on your side, but not in some exclusive way. We pray that you'll have full access to us when we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.